Today on the Hey Kings podcast, I'm joined by Randy Mangarelli. We're going to talk about water and, and dirt, the simplest things in agriculture, some of our challenges in having a professional life and being involved in agriculture. Can you talk about your farming operation that you grew up on? Sure. Um, my dad is a third generation out here. His grandfather kind of started a hop farm in the Yakima Valley, which is... Now, Riley, that's special. Talk <laughs> a little bit about hops in the Yakima Valley. Yeah. So so if you look globally, just to give you the macro view, about 40% of the hops in the world are grown in the U.S., and the other 40% are grown in Germany, with a few scattered abroad the rest of the world. Of the 40% grown in the United States, 75 to 80% of them are grown right in the Yakima Valley. So, so you're saying if you're drinking a beer in the U.S., there's a really high probability that those hops came from Yakima, Washington. Absolutely. Very high probability. Yep. So they, you know, have done a lot of things. Hops has always kind of been a core to, to the family farm. You know, we've had grapes, we've had raspberries, we have and have had silage corn and grain corn and mint, pepper and, and spearmint, native um, wheat, you know, we've done it all. Actually, my grandparents talked about growing potatoes, but that doesn't happen in the Yakima Valley anymore. You know, production shifts take place and they're grown elsewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, just a lot of diversity that's happened through there. The hops kind of are the one thing that have, have stuck the whole time. And what did you go to school for to become an ag lender? I didn't go to school to become an ag lender. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think I wanted to be a banker. You know, I don't know how many kids grew up uh, saying, I want to be a banker when I grew up. I really wasn't one of those. I went to school to uh, study animal science production management and ag economics. So I thought I wanted to work on a feedlot or in a slaughter facility or something like that. I love animal production and animal ag. Whenever I started to get through school, I uh, started to get recruited and, and flown back to the Midwest. I thought, I, I love the Northwest. I love the Pacific Northwest. And I don't know if I could end up in the, in the Midwest. So I started looking closer to home and, and found the Aglander deal to be pretty interesting and exciting because I get to help you know, people in the ag industry every day and uh, you know, help them essentially execute on their dreams and help their family to, to keep going. Now, Riley, we've been all over the world together, quite, quite literally. We have. <laughs> you, you've shared with me that uh, the, the transition from being a farm kid to a professional is challenging. Mm -hmm. Talk me through that a little bit. I think anyone who grows up on a farm has, you just, you just start working at a ridiculously young age and you learn to love that and love dirt and love to see something that comes out of the ground and grows into something completely new. Very few people, I think, in the world get the opportunity to, to have work that's like that. And whenever you grow up that way, you just, I don't know, it just becomes a part of you, I guess. Moving into the professional world. Now, one thing I do love is weekends <laughs> as a professional. That's a beautiful thing, you know, that, that really doesn't happen on the farm. You know, the rest of it you still long for. For me, you know, so I'm also a Christian, and I think one of the most important things for me is, like, I always found God in those things, you know, in, in the ag world and what, you know, what he creates out of nothing, essentially, that we get to be a part of. That's also something that I've always wanted to stay attached to. And so I personally, before even I met my wife, 
have done some kind of ag production just just because. And my wife and I want to raise our kids that way, even though I will be a professional and, you know, we'll be at work eight or 10 hours a day. Um, we still want to have something at home for our kids to, to grow up in that way too. So you're talking about a couple of cows. Yep. A couple of cows, a few horses, you know, a little bit of hay <laughs> right now. We, um, in our little place, we have 20 acres and we just raise grass and then, you know, market those, uh, cattle as grass fed beef, essentially. A little bit ago, you mentioned dirt. This is something that I've struggled with here a little bit recently is a little bit of an addiction to dirt that might be slowing me down. In my case, it was a particular piece of dirt and an idea that went along with it. What's your experience? You can ask any of my customers that I work with, and I use this phrase a lot, I consider dirt sacred. I don't know how else to say it, because as I said before, you know, it's kind of a part of your blood and you think it is anyway, you know, you and I have had these discussions about how important it is. But, you know, as an ag lender, especially if, if dirt has been in a certain family for a certain period of time, I actually will never, you know, lend into a piece of land beyond where that person could go out, get a job in town, trade the rent payment to the bank. And that's the way that I look at it because I do, I do feel like dirt is sacred. Now, there are times when you have to make hard decisions and, and sell and do what you got to do, but uh, um, that's the way I, I've approached it um, in my lending career so far. Mm -hmm. Do you have any pieces of dirt that you're particularly attached to? <laughs> uh, I do. I do. I have a few, and uh, I'm looking at selling some right now, actually. <laughs> uh, How do you feel about that? It's it's hard. It'll be the first time I'm actually going to sell dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just move on and hold on to it and lease it, you know. Rent it out to somebody else. Exactly. Let's talk about water. Uh, we're in the West. We're in Washington State. We have a large irrigation. We have several large irrigation projects that matter a lot. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing foresight of of our forefathers to to come up and and think of harnessing such an amazing resource whenever it seemed to be so prolific and everywhere. And, and yet, you know, we, most of those projects are in deserts who would have thought that bringing water to those areas would create some of the most productive lands, you know, really anywhere. It, it's pretty awesome. Riley, when you say a desert, you mean a real desert. You're from Yakima. I'm from Yakima and you know, the whole Columbia basin and the Yakima Valley, our rainfall is about you know, seven to nine inches uh, a year. So truly a desert. I have customers and, and like I said, my family farms still, uh, they all have stories of ripping out sagebrush. It truly was just sagebrush with patchy, you know, bunch grass. That That's that's like, all it was. Like you might see in an old John Wayne movie exactly. where they're pushing cows through the desert and there's just sagebrush. Yep. Two, one horse on each side with a chain down the middle, you know, pull, pushing yeah, sagebrush. My great-grandfather has a story when he came out in kind of Dust Bowl time, you know, came to the West. He had two horses and each of them had one eye apiece. He got them for a good deal and that's how he uh, started breaking land. <laughs> so I'd imagine you don't pay a lot for a horse with one eye. Yeah, yeah. But when they're hitched together, they could go straight down the row, I guess, he told me. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
fun times. And that was when they were kind of, you know, irrigation districts had started up and were going, you know, out in the West where uh, water rights are, are extremely important. Um, you know, water law here is uh, first in time, first in right. We have many senior water right districts, and uh, that's where a whole bunch of the, the diversity that comes in the West and in, you know, apples and, and grapes and you know, raspberries and blueberries now, you know, out here, um, all kinds of cool things. You say senior water rights. Does that mean there's also non-senior water rights? (laughs) You got it. So junior water rights. Yep. And and again, it's first in time, first in right. So those, it's all been adjudicated. Well, many are still being adjudicated, but those rights have to go through a, a whole legal process to figure out their, you know, the claim that they had. And then uh, work through a whole process to become actual certificated, you know, rights uh, with the Department of Ecology and, and others. So for some reason, most of our areas, the time frame is 1905. If you're pre-1905, you're a senior right holder. And if you're post-1905, it's a junior right holder. So these rights were claimed, you know, long ago. Those continue to, to exist today. And, um, you know, most of the juniors, if if we have a tough year, tough waterfall year and and in the Yakima Basin um, those that don't know we have five reservoirs that feed the the Yakima um, and those are all snow fed from the Cascade Mountains basically above Seattle exactly yep and and those actually are not even enough to feed the I think it's 80,000 you know acres uh, of farm ground below them snowfall has to stay in the mountains and and fill each of those reservoirs three times before um you know, we have enough water to, to take care of the, the rights. And so uh, junior right holders, you know, in certain years may be cut. And, you know, those who were last to the, the claim essentially uh, get cut first. And, and the junior guys, you know, may end up with 70% of their water or maybe in a really tough year, 50 or 40% of their water and get, get cut short, um, you know, in the year. Do you want to talk about hemp? This is hay. So I don't know if you want to go there. We had a really good Hay Kings article that was shared talking about a hay shortage in southern Oregon. And one of the things cited in that article was 40,000, 50,000 acres of hemp that weren't there last year. And those acres came from somewhere. Hay isn't the highest grossing crop that you can grow, so maybe that's the first one in line when a producer's looking at acres to shift into hemp. What do you see in hemp? Yeah, I think... Anytime, you know, it's an exciting time to have a completely new commodity come onto the the face of ag. You know, we have a lot to learn about it. You know, there's a lot of regulation that needs to take place. But certainly Oregon, last numbers I saw was like 55,000 acres in Oregon. I mean, that's just tremendous. I don't know what that is as a percentage of their total arable land, but it'd be pretty cool to see. There's some estimates that say it'll be the largest crop by dollar value in its first year being officially legal on a yeah. federal level. So yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that it's coming out of vegetable crops, it's hay crops, you know, it's taking land from all over. A lot of people are trying it and at least trying to figure it out because there's just a lot of excitement about it right now. There's a lot of caution too, at least I hope there's still some caution out there because there's a lot we don't know, a lot the FDA has to say about it and how it can be used and, and where it can be consumed. But uh, um, yeah, it's exciting. And what products can be made and all of those things. Yeah, today it's in bottled water, it's in dog food, it's a prescription drug. So what is it and how, how should it be regulated? There's a lot. And, and once we know what those things look like, then 
you know, we can figure a little bit better into what the market actually looks like. You know, what, what can consumption truly look like? If it's going to be in bottled water and everything, I mean, the sky's the limit. But my guess is the FDA is going to have a few more things to say about it than to allow it, you know, to be just used for everything. Sure. What are some of the other things that you're looking at in hemp? It's really exciting because it's three crops. You know, there's there's the fiber side of hemp. There's the grain side of hemp, which is grain, hemp hearts. People have seen those or heard of them. And then there's a cold-pressed oil that comes out of that, the hemp hearts. You know, it's like cooking oil. So you've got fiber, you've got the grain, and then you've got cannabinoids or CBD. Everyone right now is planting for CBD because that's where, you know, everyone perceives the money to be. There are some crazy numbers everyone's throwing out, you know, between, who knows, 50 and over $100,000 an acre that people are netting, you know. Now, that was probably before we, you know, were out of the pilot phase and had 55,000 acres of hemp. That's what's exciting to me is there's three different kinds of crops that are out there. I think we're going to, we're figuring out a lot of different ways to grow it. One thing I love about American farmers is they're just the most genius people around figuring it out. We're harvesting it in absolutely as many ways as you can imagine, and we'll f- they'll figure out the best way to do it and you know share with their neighbor, and down the road we'll go and, and uh, we'll have a great market. But it's going to take some time and some serious volatility before we get there, and we're going to oversupply it just like every other commodity we, we grow uh, at some point, and then it'll shake out and end up in the right, uh, the right growing regions in the right farmer's hands. And uh, I think we'll create a great product for the American consumer. It's a little bit like those potatoes in the Yakima Valley. It'll be grown, hemp will be grown some places and not others. And we just need to figure out where that settles in. Absolutely. Varietals as well. You know, I mean, this being so new, there's a lot of genetics that need to be developed in, in hemp, just like in every other crop we grow. And they're going to get better and better. You know, some will be suited for certain climates and others will be suited for others. And some will be suited for fiber production and others will be suited for, you know, high CBD oil. That's all exciting. And it's not just the CBD. It's, it's you know, it's nurseries. It's, it's, there's many industries that will be built around it as well. So, And maybe some choppers and balers and harvesting equipment and, and things that don't exist yet, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, I know that there are various people using hay equipment to harvest, you know, these crops right now, this hemp, and uh, trying to bale it, trying to wrap it. Um, there's all, you know, we're <laughs> we're doing it all different ways, and we'll figure out what works. But uh, there'll be a lot of us that fail, too, I think, in the process. And the good thing is I think many of those who are doing it are mostly experimenting. Um, now, some have gone in in a big way, but uh, there's a lot of experimenting happening, so... But experimenting in the right way with hemp and not marijuana, can you just clarify the difference between the two? Absolutely. So hemp uh, essentially became legal in, in the 2014 Farm Bill under a pilot program uh, that the USDA put out. And in 2018, um, the Farm Bill took hemp off of the, it's like the DEA's list. I, I don't know, it's Schedule 1 or the narcotics list, essentially. We have a good definition now federally of, of what hemp is in relation to other cannabis or marijuana, and it's you know 0.3% THC or less. That's that's the maximum amount of THC, and THC is the stuff that's that's psychoactive that you know can cause people to 
to get high essentially. So, you know, you would have to smoke like two tons of hemp to, to get a buzz and that's, your lungs are going to burn out long before that. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, so hemp and it's tested heavily regulated as well. Um, you know, this, the USDA will come out with their own program. The States, um, can adopt that or have their own program that gets approved by the USDA. All of the, the farms that I've visited with hemp, um, you know, have been tested for THC and, can be subject to random testing as well. And um, so far I'm hearing great, great things out of all that. There is a lot of standardizing of testing that we need to figure out between the states and all of that, but more to come there. The other thing to note is, you know, THC is, is in, it can be in two forms. It can be in the alpha form, which is when it's in the plant, it's kind of an alpha acid form. And then whenever it's, um, whenever it's heated or processed, that's when it becomes Delta nine THC. And that's actually the psychoactive version of THC. So we still, some states may be just testing for Delta 9 and others might be testing for both of them together. um, And that's going to change. So there's some regulatory clarity needed for that. Absolutely. Yep. We're kind of figuring it out as we go right now. Yeah. Why do you think Hay Kings is so popular? I think people want to be surrounded by those who are like them, that have the same interests. And in the world of agriculture, there was a gap. There was space to talk about corn and soybeans. I think the hay industry got left behind a little bit. I think it got left behind in the 50s and 60s when the, the uh, baby boomers were moving off of the farm. And the last connection that people had to agriculture was bucking bales on their grandpa's farm riding the hay wagon behind the baler or bucking bales onto a trailer. And all they can remember about it is it was hard, miserable work. And I think Hay Kings has provided a place to reconnect with agriculture a little bit and understand that it's a business, that there are other people doing it, that the industry has grown, that's innovated, it's become something that they almost don't recognize. And they want to be a part of that. They want to see that. Uh, I, I think people inherently like innovation. They like to see progress, whether they admit it or not. But most of all, I think people want to connect. Mm-hmm. I think it provides a space where you can look at a giant round baler in Texas or a, a 2370 Massey big baler baling oats in Western Australia and, and seeing paddocks that are thousands of hectares and, and a, a totally different scale than what they remember growing up on their grandpa's farm. And then all of a sudden, you can mash those things together, taking this idea of scale and grandeur. And and sometimes it's a great thing to encourage a producer to grow and expand and to see opportunity. Uh, And sometimes it's just really neat to look at. Mm -hmm. I love seeing the the diversity that's out there and the ways that people put up hay. It's just amazing. That's why I'm a part of the group. And and I like the wrecks. I like to see the wrecks. Oh. <laughs> when people are willing to share their wrecks. You know, I we used to do that on the farm. My dad would take a picture if we sunk something up to the axles or whatever, you know. There were always those those pictures for some reason that for the shop, you know, to remember. But I feel I, I remember that when I get to see some of the the wrecks and fires and whatever, you know, people share on, on Hay Kings. Right. What surprised you the most about kind of the growth of Hay Kings and, and the direction it went? I thought I was the only one that was batshit crazy enough to, to think and talk about hay all the time. I'm not the only one. 
That's what surprised me the most, that there's other people that wanted to do this. And not just a few. I, I'll look at something and like, you know, someone sheared a pin off and there's 90 people that comment, that care enough to comment and tell them how to fix it. I'm like, are you serious? That's amazing. Right. It's really cool. Right. And some of the comments, of course, are, you know, sarcastic and whatnot, but uh, <laughs> that makes it all the funner. Oh, that's, that's the uh, welcome to the internet, right? <laughs> 